Well, welcome back to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven, and as always, it's a pleasure to have your company. Today, I'm uh, meeting somebody that I first met back in the 90s and who we had shared interests and in to do with protection of children and the vulnerable. And this man is still at it today. He's the investigative journalist, David Henke. Now, David is an award-winning campaigning journalist who's had a working lifetime of challenging the establishment and holding many, many, many to account, top politicians and many institutions. And essentially, he it was voted the investigative journalist of the year in 2012, and he's still very active today. And today we're going to talk about a specific uh, issue that he's been consumed with recently, and it's a very important issue to do with natural justice. Anyway, welcome David Henke. Oh, hello, Ro. Well, I'm very pleased to be, be on the program. And um, basically, um, I want to talk about um, the plight of, it's, it amounts to 3.8 million women who were born in the 1950s, but who were confidently through their lifetime expecting to get their pension at 60. And in 1995, the government decided that because it appeared that people were living much longer and because of the, um, they saw as a rising costs of the pensions, that they would raise the pension age from 60 to 65 uh, for women to phasing it in from 2010 to actually 2018-2020. Now, it was presented at the time as a great equality measure because women um, basically uh, retired five years earlier than men and generally tended to live two or three years longer than men. And therefore the government said, well, we're really doing this to, uh, to introduce equal, uh, equal treatment for men and women. And, and um, this is one way to do it. This ha- just happens to be an area where, um, where women have an advantage. Now, on the superficially, this may sound okay. And similarly, superficially, it might sound there was a lot of notice for this. But the truth is that it was um, a really very unequal measure for the women concerned. And the main reason is that to get their pension in the first place, they were not equal with men. The years that they built up under national insurance contributions were not equal with men either. Most men actually can show a 35-year, or it might have even been then 40-year record of contributions because they've been in employment all the time. For women, um, their employment was often part-time, And they also took time out for childcare as well. As a result, the contributions they made were not the same as men. They were gaps. And unlike the modern pension that's been introduced since 2016, there was no provision whatsoever for contributions while they were bringing up children. So a lot of them, 
um, basically did not have um, the full contribution and therefore when they retired at 60 and it still is shown today there is still an average difference between male, the male pension and the, uh, and the female pension they basically got less money. Now the injustice was that the women basically as I say first of all weren't on a level playing field there was but in the 1960s and 70s, women often couldn't get a mortgage. Oh. Well, now, actually, people forget that in, um, that in the 1960s and 70s and so on, women, not only were they um, disadvantaged by the pension thing, but there was a very wide pay gap. Mm. When they were working part-time, they often couldn't contribute to a pension, even though they were in work, unlike full-time men. And even for basic things like getting a mortgage, at one stage it needed a man's permission for it. So, <laughs> so basically, the, uh, the background of this it isn't equal, equal at all, but it gets worse. Go on um, then, go on then, tell us. What is really bad was that you would think 1995, well, they'd had a lot of notice and by 2010 they could make arrangements. Well, what happened in 1995, although the, there was news coverage of, you know, that this was happening and coverage before that they were raising the pension age, what happened was that the government did nothing really about it to inform people. And because the women took a court case for a judicial review, which sadly at the moment they have lost at the Court of Appeal, but the Department of Work and Pensions was forced to produce a lot of documentation on this. And one of the most extraordinary things is that Peter Lilly, when he was Social Security Secretary in 1997, before the Blair victory, um, the civil servants said to him that he ought to launch a campaign because they didn't think the women were really aware that this change was coming. And he actually declined to do so. And when Labour got in, Labour spent a lot of time about the second pension and making arrangements for people to, um, it ended up as a stakeholder pension, but didn't highlight either the fact that the pension age was changing and some of the women even got the wrong information when they rang up or chased things up saying they were still retiring at 60 when it came to after 2010 when it wasn't. And to make, um, basically, it was not really to 2007 or 8 that the government began to think it ought to tell some women. And then, actually, before they really did it on any large scale, the Labour lost, Gordon Brown lost the election in 2010, and David Cameron came in under a coalition government. And the first thing they decided to do was to raise the pension age even further from 65 to 66. Again, citing in 2011 when the uh, bill came before Parliament that, you know, people were even living longer, more than they were in 1995. And there was a big mm -hmm. rush and we had to do something about this. But what it meant for these women, that for uh, a lot of them from um, basically when it got to about 2018, um, rather than the getting the pension at 65, it was moving to 66. So 
the maximum case for some of the women born in the later 1950s was actually they had to wait six years and not five. Now, um, another extraordinary fact of discovered through a freedom of information request from one of the women who was fighting this is that say that basically there was an unfair arrangement for men up to 65 because in 1983 when Lady Thatcher was in charge um, basically there was a panic about the growth of unemployment and the go and Sir Geoffrey Howe introduced in his budget an interesting rule that basically said if men decided not to go onto the dole queues and therefore boost the figures higher than the, probably the three million it was who were age 60 but just registered and if say their wife had retired because remember it would have been 60 at that time and therefore was already getting a pension the government would pay all their national insurance contributions for the next five years not only was that it was presented as a, as a temporary measure, but actually it went on, we discovered through this FOI, to 2018. Men were still getting this if they chose to basically drop out at 60, or they say had a works pension which came in earlier. And as a result, 9.8 million men got the right of their, um, uh, got what are known as auto credits, their national insurance contributions paid by the state to top up their pension when they were already probably going mm. to get quite a good pension anyway. Okay. Now, that was another sort of really bad sign about how the people were treated because actually the Labour government was going to offer women for eight years between when this pension age started rising above 60 to towards to 65 to 2018 when it when it was both six, uh, 65 was going to give them the same thing but the coalition cancelled it <laughs> and um, so they got nothing on that now I also did an investigation, the main organisation that has taken the people called, funny enough, isn't the better known WASPy women, which has spent most of its time trying to lobby MPs to get a change, rather than taking any uh, legal action through the courts. But Back to 60 decided that this was so unfair they would go for a judicial review. And they asked me to do quite a lot of research about some of the things the government was claiming. And I discovered an amazing thing when I did this uh, that I hadn't noticed when I was a political journalist in Westminster. What I hadn't realised was that for in, um, after Thatcher had won the 87 election, she decided by John Moore that the money going into the National Insurance Fund every year, both from people's contributions, was always topped up a third or up to a third by the Treasury. And this dates back to the um, 1940s when Beveridge and, and all the um, changes the Labour government introduced at the time to back up the NHS. They basically put money into the National Insurance Fund from the state because it also paid out maternity benefits, unemployment benefits and other things. And what Thatcher discovered was that actually there was probably just about enough money going in in the 1987-88 um, to do to basically decide to end the Treasury contribution. Hmm. The Treasury contribution was never 
really properly restored. It was basically she had to back off four years later because unemployment got so heavy that it started running into a deficit. So she allowed minor top-ups. But, but I then calculated by finding a wonderful paper written, um, I was still on the internet, for the Southwark Pensioners Organization by a wonderful special advisor called Tony Lines, who's now dead. Um, but um, at the time, he looked into this change and basically calculated how many billions a year the government was saving. And he published all his findings at the time. And as he was an expert, he, whatever he said could be, I mean, I relied on him as a journalist when I was in Parliament to advise me when David Ennals was Social Security Secretary mm -hmm. on the changes. So um, basically, I then discovered that the government had made an unbelievable savings from the National Insurance Fund by this change. They'd actually saved 271 billion, not million, billion pounds by not contributing. And funnily enough, George Osborne gave it away. We found on the internet in America, he boasted about the cuts and he said, well, the easiest cut we ever did <laughs> was raising the pension age and they don't, didn't notice it uh, because we cut the national insurance. Company. Okay, David, right. Let me pursue that a little bit further and give you a chance to sort of... Um because yeah. it's still unfinished, uh, unfinished business. It's still sort of, um, uh, although it's been to the appeal court, that uh, the, the judicial review and the appeal courts essentially thrown it out. There is still talk of uh, the women taking it to the Supreme Court, I believe. So I, I just want a sense from you because you've been steeped in this along, obviously, with lots of women who have been kind of devoting so much time and energy to this. Do you think that generally, what was the proportion of ineptitude, greed, political machinations on people just thinking, well, look, a lot of these women are going to be poor, um, unhealthy, um, easy prey kind of women that won't make a fuss. And therefore, like you just said there, it's easy money to claw back to the treasury. I mean, which of these, or is it a mixture of these things, do you think, was the case? I think it's a mixture, but I, I have a feeling because, I mean, and this is why the women are so angry and feel hard done by. They feel they played by the rules. A lot of them are not that political and they've just brought up families, they've taken part-time jobs, etc. I think they actually thought, well, these women are not are not sort of members of Extinction Rebellion or anything like this. They're not going to cause complete uh, outrage and chaos. They're not really very important, and they are going to die off slowly anyway. And I think there was a, a level of political machinations in the sense they thought they could get away with this. And I think they were quite shocked that they, uh, that they did actually go to the court and also got an amazing lawyer to fight their case, Michael Mansfield, who's a well-known lawyer. Oh, very well-known, yeah. yeah. And he took it up and was prepared to go into bat for them. And in fact, the first hearing, um, when everyone said, oh, the government won't even entertain this as primary legislation, it won't even be discussed. They got a judge, um, um, a uh, Mrs. Justice Lang, 
who I think is quite independent-minded, and she granted the whole thing on all grounds, saying, yes, there can be one. And then it went to a first judicial review, and it got thrown out um, by a, a judge who was pretty clear that he thought this was all nonsense and that, that, that the fact they were poor and deprived has nothing to do with the pension age. It's just because they were poor and deprived, etc. And he wouldn't accept the inequality arguments. Uh, and again, the, um, the, uh, they went back to um, to the Court of Appeal and got permission to bring an, a case to the Court of Appeal on all the grounds they'd raised before. And unfortunately, again, it got thrown out by the master of the roles and everything else, and the other two judges, who basically, again, wouldn't accept the inequality arguments, and actually took the letter of the law that the Department for Work and Pensions isn't, believe it or not, it's not by law obliged to tell you what your pension is, because uh, it was never written into the legislation in 1995. And they just accepted this was primary legislation. Was that, that unanimous? I'm afraid it was, yes, actually. Okay, uh, well, at this point, though, before I forget, can I just ask you one thing about it? Because I want to be able to put a link to wherever there are people sort of supporting the, the women at the moment who are challenging this. Is there a, 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 a group, a website, uh, an address or anything like that that we can put Yes, there, there, is, there is back to 60, which is one uh, word. Um, and they are, they've got a, wait a minute, they've got, got a website and a Facebook page and they've got a lot lot on their, them actually okay. Okay. and if you have any trouble get in touch with me and i'll get in touch oh, with I, you. I, we'll have all your details on the front of the podcast anyway the text at the front of the podcast that's no problem do anyway but listen i i mean I, it it's just amazing the iniquity and the things that are perpetrated on some of the most vulnerable members of society um, and sometimes on people that I suppose an awful lot of politicians thought wouldn't um, wouldn't really fight back. So I mean I think it's marvelous that there's the sh the spotlight being shone on this still, even though legally it's still touch and go. Um, but I do hope they take it to the Supreme Court and get some kind of ultimate decision because at least then they've tried their very hardest and shown. You know, that when people get together or whatever their background, whatever their lack of political influence or political activity, you know, they can still make a difference. And that's the important thing. And if I can say, because we're coming on to about the last 10 minutes of the program, I want to be able to show where you've shone in the past to do with representing people that didn't have voices. Um, can we, is that, I will put the details of the, of the, the was it back to 60? Yeah, back to 60. I'll yeah. do that. Is it the numeral 60 or the word 60? Yeah, numeral 60. It's the numeral yeah. 60. Okay, I'll put that on the front as well. Yeah. Um, but look, I knew you when you went worked for the Guardian newspaper. Uh, and I know you had various roles there, but I think you were Westminster correspondent when I first met you. And in that, I, I, I mean, I'm reading, but I do remember, you won three awards for some major investigations and including the, 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 the people will definitely remember the cash for questions scandal. Mm, mm. And, that, and that caused all sorts of bankruptcies and it also caused Peter Mandelson to resign at the time. I know he came back again, but I mean, but I mean about a big major sort of loan he got from a fellow minister. And 
that was real major stuff at the time and and you know you, you actually quite rightly got got awards within the 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 profession for that does it does that sort of sit as one of the high points for you yes it does i mean the cash for questions investigation mm. took on and off um about three years not not working on it all the time because because people forget it was before the age of the internet where you can look things up and find things at your fingertips we had to and what we realized was that there was a corrupt lobbying company called ian greer associates which was an a former tory agent um who Basically, he was getting, he had a, a, a wonderful blue chip um, sort of list of clients, making a lot of money from firms that have been um, denationalized and privatized by Margaret Thatcher, firms like British Airways, for example. Mm -hmm. But he also had a number of dubious accounts. And, uh, and well, this was all, by the way, proven, wasn't it? I mean, this is not still on allegation level. Uh, uh, no, this was all um, uh, basically uh, proved. What happened to him? He went bust mm. after our story. Oh, right. I mean, he's no longer alive now. He went off mm. to South. Actually, he went off to South Africa and did something rather nice. He got involved with campaigning for the blacks and the poor. He seems to have had a one of these things, a bit like John Profumo oh. after the Profumo cross. I discovered this years <laughs> after. Uh, but I mean, he, he was... Um, no, but uh, how interesting. I mean, because you could say from Britain, South Africa is on the road to Damascus. Yeah, yeah. In that respect. <laughs> <laughs> it is rather amazing, that. But I mean, I, yeah. I thought, well, at least he, he did decide that his whole thing was... Um, okay. Well, let me tell people a little bit more about you, because I want to be able to pack a bit in here, David. I mean, you, uh, you, you were quite well known as a pain in the neck to an awful lot of establishment people, weren't you? At, at various points about various places that you wrote for. I mean, the, the number of newspapers and journals and online things, it was just enormous that you actually contributed to. You still write a blog, which will we'll make sure is, 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 is prominent. But you also got involved with various things at Exaro News and you won an award in 12, 2012, which I said, Investigative Journalist of the Year. But then you were uh, the, the tax avoidance of the head of a student loans company you actually exposed. And then yes, I think I can tell you about that. Um, in two we, minutes, in two minutes, then we've got other things to minutes, talk about. Very, very simply, um, I, um, I think I can say this now, um, a former um, DTI civil servant who had retired came to me and said he thought something dodgy was going on there but he couldn't put his finger on it and between us we crafted a specific FOI request very carefully worded the student loan company and they came back with 45 pages of stuff about all this that basically nailed this guy we panicked the um, chief secretary of the treasury who was the liberal democrat um, what's his name alexander actually who uh graham who, alexander 
Yeah, the, the, um, anyway, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, he then um, he then launched an inquiry because he knew I was going on news night and they were doing it, and they discovered two and a half thousand civil servants had similar arrangements but never told them. <laughs> so and it did. Uh, that's why I won the award because it actually changed. I think I was unpopular with one or two people. I can imagine you just you weren't exactly flavour of the month for Christmas cards then. I mean. No. <laughs> but, but listen, all of that, of course, was was actually fully um, authenticated, wasn't it? There's no allegations involved still in all of that. No, no, that there was no question, uh, okay. and that was it, actually. Um, okay. I, well, listen, the next thing I want to just mention, because you've written several books, you've written with with a couple of books with Francis Beckett on the Blairs and their court, or mm. marching to the fault line as well, which was. You, in your words, you said it was a bit controversial about the 1984 miners' strike. Yes. Um, well, you know, um, the reason is I was on a um, advisory committee for, to implement the Freedom of Information Act. Mm. I got a point of it. And I spotted that the 30-year rule would become partly redundant because you could put FOI requests into things that um, the, that they could reply to, particularly if organisations didn't exist. So I got this idea, and I talked over with Francis Beckett, to uh, use freedom of information to get as many documents as I could on what had been going on with government. And we found out some amazing revelations, like, like they nearly won at one stage. <laughs> because of the stupidity of Ian McGregor, who was about mm. to sign something in, and I had to rush to his Belgravia pad and get the meeting halted. And we found it in documents, you know, that really? which was then confirmed by both Peter Walker and David Hunt, who were the ministers then at the time, uh, that um, I was able to interview. Good grief. All right, well, look, um, again, quickly moving on a bit, because I think there's something, and you, you told me when we were talking before, that this almost surprised you. And in a sense, you know, you're talking about here's an establishment that essentially you really stuck needles into. And suddenly uh, uh, an investigation that essentially was an establishment-based one, the Gosport Independent Panel, which was addressing concerns about the initial care to the relatives in the Gosport War Memorial Hospital and, and the surrounding their deaths, they invited you to be on the panel. Yes, this is true. And uh, I, because I, I couldn't understand it, I had an interview in the Home Office and thought, why do they want to see me? And I was really puzzled. But then I met the person who interviewed me because he came back to edit the full gospel uh, report. Yeah. And I said to him, you know, I'm really surprised because I've been a nuisance to everybody in Whitehall and ministers. And, and I'm suddenly put on this, this investigation, which is bound to be embarrassing for the, for the government in the end. And he said, well, that's why we appointed you, because we knew you'd be truly independent. And you wouldn't be swayed by anything. And you would get to the bottom of things because we'd seen what you'd done with everything else. So, so it actually uh, it made me think that there, there are good things in this world. There, there are people you don't know about who spot what you do and think, well, we'll use you to uh, because we do want an independent inquiry into this. And they did, actually. So uh, there you are. I mean, the, I mean... It's funny how the world sort of chucks you um, sort of a strange throw sometimes. Um, 
when you least expect it. And even sometimes reinforces the idea that you'd only hoped about before that there was goodness in the world and a sense of balance. Mm. However, anyway, listen, um, we're winding up to the end, but what, what I want to ask you is, uh, I know you're involved in several things at the moment. I mean, obviously, one of them is to do with kind of, you know, the whole um, back to 60 movement again. But what other things would you like to try and have a go at? I know you said there was some unfinished work you were doing to do with paedophile rings and that involved sort of fairly sort of well-known or important people. But is that is that getting anywhere at the moment? Um, well, the moment because of this... Um, the guy who was put away, who mm. um, conned everybody, uh, the, about, yeah. you know, and actually uh, it, it's made it difficult. But I'm actually working on something that's quite interesting uh, by a guy who has done, called Andrew Lowley, who's written a book on the, <laughs> loves and the lives and loves of the Mountbattens. Yeah. And he's been using FOI to find out about the background because he's got some extraordinary stuff which he's put under rumours in his book that Mountbatten was involved with a, um, a lad who yeah. was at Kinkora. Careful now, careful now. <laughs> I have to be careful but yeah. in his book and it's under rumours okay. but, but to tell you the main thing I'm interested in we've discovered he's discovered and he wants me to look at this and both in America and in um, and in uh, Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic and the National Archives here, it looks as though someone has tried to remove loads of documents on this. Really? And basically, well, yes, this is what's really interesting. And, and America has got documents on Mountbatten up to, particularly in the Second World War, but suddenly have decided they, they, they've destroyed the rest post that. Um, similarly, both the uh, uh, Irish Republic and the, and the Northern Ireland office seem to have missing stuff on this as well. And um, it's quite... Um, uh, it's uh, quite fascinating. We're trying to find out what, what it is. It certainly that. sounds like a mystery, which could be some kind of um, underhand plot, or it could just be stupidity, or it just could be just somebody that decided to get rid of a bit of extra luggage within the archives. I think probably, though, we all know what the best suspicion is, but at this point, I presume you're still looking into it, yeah? We're still looking into it, and he's also, um, um, he's, he did get one amazing thing that was released, which was, you know, the murder of Mountbatten. Yes, 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 the bullying. Well, he, yeah. he found a file that a young guy, a 22-year-old military guy, was near the lake where um, Mountbatten was, was yeah. blown up. And he spotted the registration of a car that he knew the IRA used for carrying bombs. He reported this to the Irish, it's in his book, to the Irish Garda. And they were a bit miffed that the Northern Ireland police were doing this and they didn't do anything about it. And I think this is one most extraordinary. They've kept it secret for 40 years and then released it just as he was doing this book. Oh, and that is truly amazing because if they'd acted on this and had searched the yacht, they might have saved his life, actually. But they didn't take any notice of this 22-year-old. So many, I mean, 
it's always a balance. And I know you mean you, you believe this as well from all your years sort of being involved in the whole kind of Westminster pool. Um, there's so many things that later you discover if only um, somebody had said something, somebody had done something, somebody had responded a bit quicker, look at the Manchester bombing, etc. you know, and that, it, that effectively you, you wonder though, the only problem is you, you, you never get accurate figures, or I don't, you're much more probably in tune than I am, about the successful interruptions that have taken place. I just, I just wish we heard a little bit more sometimes about that because like all sorts of things in life, it, it does help balance people's thinking. Anyway, look, David, um, I'm really so appreciative of you being on the program. It's a wonderful kind of opportunity. And I, I'm so glad we kind of reconnected again because I think we, we did do some work together, but both of us were struggling to try and remember which particular case it was um, back, at, back in the 90s. That must have been to do with child sexual abuse, I think. I'm certain of it because that's what was consuming me at the time. And I know you were writing about it. But um, I, I will steer people towards your blog. Steer people towards you also have, um, you also write for, don't you, um, uh, byline.com, which is Byline. a crowdfunded website. And most of your posts are uh, published on that site. And I would encourage people to go and actually read it, byline.com. I'll put the link on, on the front page. But apart from that, I just want to say how pleased I am. And thank you very much indeed for coming and raising some of these points. And going over some of these historical challenges that some of which were sorted and some of which are just still unfinished business. So, David Hankey, thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you very much, David. I mean, it's been really interesting talking to you and also great to reconnect <laughs> after such a long time. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm hoping we can come back at some point in the future and we can have updates for some of the listeners, which I think would be quite nice too. But uh, that sounds the, the law in this country is a little bit sort of snail-like sometimes. Anyway, yeah. David, keep well. Many, many thanks. Okay, thank you for coming on. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.